In our previous episode on Antony and Cleopatra, we said that the very size of the character's vision almost makes that vision a reality. Antony and Cleopatra articulate their cosmic sense of themselves in language so grand and transcendent that the language itself helps persuade us that they are such cosmic giants. In this episode, we look at three moments in the play that particularly create this sense of the couple as mythic figures who transcend their historical losses. Joyce MacDonald, professor of English at the University of Kentucky, guides our discussion. Our first speech comes from Act Two. It offers the most extended, moving, sensuous description of Cleopatra in the play. And it's especially convincing because it doesn't come from Cleopatra or from her lover, Antony, but from Enobarbus. Enobarbus is a shrewd, practical soldier who is ready enough to criticise Cleopatra at other points in the play. But when some Roman officers question Enobarbus about what Cleopatra is like, he responds with this depiction of her, and if her magnificence has so swayed Enobarbus, it must surely sway us too. The barge she sat in like a burnished throne burned on the water. The poop was beaten gold purple the sails and so perfumed that the winds were lovesick with them. The oars were silver, which to the tune of flutes kept stroke and made the water which they beat to follow faster. As avarice of their strokes for her own person. A beggared old description. She did lie in her pavilion, cloth of gold, of tissue. Oh, I'm picturing that Venus where we see the fancy outwork nature. On each side her stood pretty dimpled boys like smiling cupids with divers coloured fans whose wind did seem to glow the delicate cheeks which they did cool and what they undid did her gentlewomen, like the Nerides, so many mermaids, tended her the eyes and made their bends adornings. At the helm, a seeming mermaid steers, the silken tackle swell with the touches of those flower-soft hands that yearly frame the office from the barge. A strange Invisible perfume hits the sense of the adjacent wharfs. The city cast her people out upon her, and Antony, enthroned in the marketplace, did sit alone, whistling to the air, which but for vacancy had gone to gaze on Cleopatra too, and made a gap in nature. Upon her landing, Antony sent her, invited her to supper. She replied it should be better he became her guest, which she entreated. Our courteous Antony, whom ne'er the word of no woman heard speak, being barbered ten times o'er, goes to the feast 
and for his ordinary pays his heart for what his eyes eat only. <laughs> I saw her once hop forty paces through the public street and having lost her breath she spoke and panted that she did make defect perfection and breathless poor breath forth age cannot wither her nor custom stale her infinite variety other women cloy the appetites they feed but she makes hungry where most she satisfies for vilest things become themselves in her Though the holy priests bless her when she is riggish Shakespeare's main source here is Plutarch Plutarch's Noble Lives of the Grecians and Romans which was uh, translated into English in 1579 and at certain points in the play you can tell he's writing with his copy of North's Plutarch basically open on the desk beside him. He takes sections of North's prose translation and, and turns it into verse, most notably in the scene where Enobarbus is describing Antony and Cleopatra's first meeting. This rich, gorgeous description that he gives to this prosaic, soldierly guy. Comparing Plutarch's text to Shakespeare helps reveal how Shakespeare wants us to understand Cleopatra. He makes subtle but significant changes that suggest the transformative effect Cleopatra has on the world around her. In North's translation, this section of Plutarch reads, She came sailing up the river Sindus in a barge with gilded stern and outspread sails of purple, while oars of silver beat time to the music of flutes. Shakespeare writes, The oars were silver which to the tune of flutes kept stroke and made the water which they beat to follow faster as amorous of their strokes. He keeps the image of the silver oars, but adds the detail of the water that is eager to be beat by the oars, as if amorous of the strokes. This image animates something inanimate, turning it into something that feels sexual desire. Shakespeare creates a similar effect in rewriting Plutarch's outspread sails of purple. Purple the sails and so perfumed that the winds were lovesick with them. Here, too, the wind is animated and feels sensations of longing and desire. Later, Plutarch recounts, The perfumes diffused themselves from the vessel to the shore, which was covered with multitudes, part following the galley up the river on either bank, part running out of the city to see the sight. The marketplace was quite emptied, and Antony at last was left alone sitting upon the tribunal. Shakespeare's version reads, The city cast her people out upon her, and Antony enthroned in the marketplace did sit alone, whistling to the air which, but for vacancy, had gone to gaze on Cleopatra too, and made a gap in nature. 
In Plutarch, the people run after the barge. In Shakespeare, it is the city itself that casts out the people, as if the city wishes to honour Cleopatra with an audience, and the very air is animated as wishing to go and gaze on Cleopatra too. In Shakespeare's version, Cleopatra's sensual aura is so powerful that it doesn't just affect human beings. It actually animates and gives life to the material world around her, transforming inanimate objects into beings that feel desire just as Antony does. Relating her effect on her surroundings is perhaps the best way to describe her, because attempting to describe Cleopatra herself, as Eno Barbus says, is virtually impossible. One of the things I think is important in Eno Barbus's description of Cleopatra's first presentation of herself to Antony, and it is a full-scale theatrical self-presentation, is how quickly he defaults to how it's almost impossible to describe. The magnificence of her appearance beggared all description. I almost don't have the words to be able to tell you what it was like. And that sense of the insufficiency of mere words is kind of a hallmark of a lot of the action that we see throughout the play. But of course, he goes on for several more lines, describing the magnificence of her appearance. Ina Barbas describes not only Cleopatra's presentation, but also the emotional action of the scene, what it felt like to Antony. He had prepared himself so carefully, he says. He was barbered ten times over. He's there as an emissary of Rome. But instead, he ends up being overwhelmed, bowled over by what she does. So what Enobarbus is describing here is how Cleopatra sort of uh, took the initiative from this emissary of Rome and made this scene her own rather than just agreeing to being cast as the, uh, the suppliant, the guest. At the end of it, though, Ina Barbas's description gives way to something else, and I think that it's important to imagine the actor playing him looking back on this time he saw her hop 40 paces through a public street. Remembering that, how surprised he was, how overwhelmed he was, how different this seemed than anything he had observed in his years at Antony's side, she did make defect perfection. We've had a lot of people in the play judging Cleopatra's behavior, both with and without Antony. But here is Zena Barbas, the man on the street, the straight shooter, telling us, yeah, she was panting, she was sweating, but she made defect perfection. There's something about Cleopatra's difference that is compelling that deserves our attention and our consideration. That's not just about the physical effects she creates. He saw her hop 40 paces through a public street, but I always hear him say that as he's describing her, her infinite variety. And it's not something that he's putting down or thinks was, was dumb or, or trashy. For him, it's like, I saw her do this. You know, I was amazed. 
It made such a strong impression on me. She is truly this creature of infinite variety. You know, she doesn't fit a norm of what we're used to back here in Rome. She's completely different. She overflows the measure, which is a term that Philo uses in that first speech in a very denigrative, critical way. But for Enobarbus, her excess is, is part of her magic. Our next speech comes from Act 4. Antony has been told that Cleopatra committed suicide and decides to kill himself as well. In this speech, he imagines how he and Cleopatra will be reunited in the afterlife. His vision alludes to the Aeneid, the epic poem by the Roman poet Virgil, in which Prince Aeneas must leave his lover Dido to fulfil his divine mission and become the ancestral founder of Rome. Many elements of the play echo the Aeneid, but here, Antony deliberately rewrites that epic story of empire to accommodate his love for Cleopatra. I will o'ertake thee, Cleopatra, and weep for my pardon. So it must be, for now all length is torture. Since the torch is out, lie down and stray no farther. Now all labour mars what it does, yea, very force entangles itself with strength. Seal then, and all is done. Eros! I come, my queen. Eros! Stay for me. Where souls do couch on flowers, we'll hand in hand, and with our sprightly port make the ghosts gaze. Dido and her Aeneas shall want troops, and all the haunt be ours. Come, Eros! Eros! Anthony is preparing for his own death. He's heard the false news that she's dead, which is a story that she was going to tell him to make him not be mad at her anymore. It is one of those things that that does strike observers as being very trivial. But what's not trivial here is Anthony's grief, his remorse. He will weep for his pardon. But more, what I think this passage tells us is as he's trying to describe the value of the life that they lived, the values that they tried to embody in the way they presented themselves, the way they behaved themselves, he engages here with this founding myth of Rome, the story of Dido and Aeneas. When you talk about Roman history and Shakespeare, you're also always thinking in some ways about the Aeneid, which is an epic of Rome's foundation. And it's uh, a poem that I think is really relevant to Antony and Cleopatra in a lot of ways. In the Aeneid, of course, Aeneas has to master himself. Aeneas is madly in love with Dido, but he has to leave her because he has this divinely ordained mission of founding a greater empire than Troy to the West. So he leaves her and continues his mission. And even though he never stops loving her, even though in the afterworld he begs her forgiveness, he knows that he didn't have any choice. He had to go on. He had to leave her. He has to master his grief. He has to master his fear and uncertainty. 
he has to break his own heart and leave Dido because he knows he's got this mission that's been ordained to him by the gods. So as he emerges in history and myth as this epic hero, it's a person who does so through discipline and loss and self-sacrifice. And so when you think about that poetic presentation of Rome's origins, I think it it resonates in Antony and Cleopatra. You've got Octavius, who is a person who is all about discipline and self-sacrifice. You've also got a tragic love story. In the Aeneid, of course, Aeneas leaves Dido, even though he loves her. Antony stays with Cleopatra, who, like Dido, is also an African queen, Dido from Carthage and Cleopatra from Egypt. He stays with her and tries, I think, to write, write love and erotic connection back into the, the foundation of empires. Whereas the Aeneid says, it hurts us, but we have to let that go. It's not consonant with our, our martial, our imperial mission. What Antony and Cleopatra, of course, try to do is to make it all fit, to make their Egypt be about love and intimate connection, as well as about power and, and dominion. And that's a lot to put on one plate. It doesn't all fit. But I, I think of Antony and Cleopatra in connection with Dido and Aeneas. I think they kind of speak to each other in a lot of different ways. Throughout the play, Antony and Cleopatra have been trying to rewrite the story of Aeneas and Dido. So far, it appears they have been unsuccessful. The disciplined, self-sacrificing Caesar has conquered Antony, and now Antony will shortly die. But in this passage, Antony tries to rewrite the story one last time. In the Aeneid, Aeneas visits the underworld and begs Dido's forgiveness, but she turns away from him. Here, Antony reimagines Dido and Aeneas reunited as Dido and her Aeneas, joined together in the afterlife after successfully leaving the obstacles of empire behind. He imagines the same outcome for himself and Cleopatra, wishing it could come true. What I love about this passage is that when Antony says that Dido and her Aeneas shall want troops, that they, Antony and Cleopatra, will replace this founding legend of how love and intimacy can be displaced and should be displaced on the way to empire that instead what's going to matter is their story of a, a deathless love that matters more than separation. That what is going to happen when they're together in the afterworld is that love and duty, love and politics will never be thought to be inherently opposed to each other again that they'll have both of these together forever. All the haunt will be ours, he says. It's not an accident that the person he's asking to help him commit suicide is named Eros. He's going to die at the hand of love. It's really beautiful. But of course, where is one of these places where Antony is sort of coming right 
smack up against imperial certainty. You might wish that, you might hope that, but that's not the way it's going to be, you know, not, not in the here and now. Our final speech comes from Act 5. Antony is dead, Cleopatra has been taken captive by Caesar, and she must decide how to negotiate her situation. When a Roman named Dolabella is set to guard her, Cleopatra delivers this speech to him. We will first hear the speech performed by actor Harriet Walter, then, after the analysis, performed by actor Janet Sussman. In the previous episode, we discussed the transformational quality in the play, the sense that if one yearns hard enough or dreams big enough, these visions can somehow become real. This aspect of the play is embodied by Cleopatra's speech. She represents Antony as a god and insists that this vision has a reality and the power of her language helps convince us that it does. I dreamt there was an emperor, Antony. Oh, such another sleep that I might see but such another man. His face was as the heavens, and therein stuck a sun and moon which kept their course and lighted the little O, the earth. His legs bestrid the ocean. His reared arm crested the world. His voice was propertied as all the tuned spheres, and that to friends. But when he meant to quail and shake the orb, he was as rattling thunder. For his bounty, there was no winter in an autumn twas that grew the more by reaping his delights were dolphin like they showed his back above the elements they lived in in his livery walked crowns and crownets realms and islands were as plates dropped from his pocket. (laughs) Think you there was, or might be, such a man as this I dreamt of? Gentle madam, no. (laughs) You lie up to the hearing of the gods. But if there be nor ever were one such, it's past the size of dreaming. Nature wants stuff to vie strange forms with fancy, yet to imagine an Antony, when nature's peace against fancy, condemning shadows quite. This is a passage, I think, that very much speaks to the, the play's interest in becoming, in moving from one state of being, one state of consciousness, to another. I dreamt there was an emperor, Antony. Antony himself, the man that she loves, that she's realizing now how much she did love him. The connection they shared is not something that belongs in this world. 
It's something that's in this other world she can enter through sleep and dreams, but it's perhaps in consonant with the political reality that she has to live in now. In a play full of magnificent language, this speech stands out in its magnificence and scale. It conjures up every element of the globe, sky, sea, land, to link Antony to recognisable images of divinity. His face was as the heavens and therein stuck a sun and moon. This echoes classical descriptions of Jove, the king of the gods, as well as angels in the Christian book of Revelations. The image of his legs bestriding the ocean recalls the Colossus at Rhodes, a statue of the sun god which once stood over Rhodes Harbour and, at 33 metres high, was one of the wonders of the ancient world. His reared arm cresting the world recalls Cleopatra's own description of Antony as Atlas, the mythical titan who held up the world in his arms. At the same time, the speech offers novel, startling images of Antony's uniquely personal qualities. His delights were dolphin-like. He moved freely between different pleasures and different communities, like a dolphin leaping out of water into air. We noted that Cleopatra is linked with the Egyptian goddess Isis, who brought together the scattered pieces of her murdered lover, the god Osiris, and restored him. In this speech, Cleopatra metaphorically assembles and joins all these aspects of Antony to present us with a being who is nothing short of a god. After his death and the indignity of his suicide, Cleopatra is using the power of her language to restore Antony's heroic stature. This speech represents the climax of the hyperbolic cosmic imagery that fills the play. This imagery represents the stakes of the play's action, as wars are fought that will determine the fate of the Roman Empire and, to an extent, the fate of the world. This imagery also represents the size and scale on which the play's lead characters exist. Caesar is the universal landlord whose power can usher in an era of universal peace. He and the other Roman leaders are called chief factors for the gods. Antony and Cleopatra are described in terms of the gods and the globe. Philo says Antony's goodly eyes once glowed like plated Mars, the god of war. Enobarbus describes Cleopatra as overpicturing Venus, the goddess of love. Antony is linked to the god Hercules and Cleopatra to the goddess Isis. Antony insists that the world itself cannot measure their love. I'll set a bourne how far to be beloved, says Cleopatra, and Antony replies, then must thou needs find out a new heaven, new earth. The world is often the only measure that characters can think of to describe Antony's stature. Eros calls Antony's face that noble countenance wherein the worship of the whole world lies. Philo calls Antony the triple pillar of the world. At Actium, one of Antony's soldiers says, the greater cantle of the world is at stake. 
Antony refers to himself as the greatest prince of the world, and Caesar says that in Antony's name lay a moiety of the world. Of course, these usages often describe what Antony was. The male Roman figures tend to see Antony as irredeemably in decline from the greatness he once possessed. But Cleopatra insists that he is still this figure of superhuman greatness, that her cosmic vision is a reality. If there be nor ever were one such, it's past the size of dreaming. To imagine an Antony were nature's peace gainst fancy, condemning shadows quite. No mere act of imagination, she says, could ever fabricate something as grand as Antony. To be able to describe this unimaginable figure means, then, that it must exist in reality. And some parts of the play give substance to her claim. When she imagines Antony as a creature of endless bounty, she's not just making this up. We've seen him express that bounty when after he knows that Enobarbus has abandoned him and gone over to Caesar, he sends all his treasure after him. He's not angry at him. He doesn't reject him. He understands and he wants to tell him at the last that he still loves him. So when Cleopatra is dreaming about Antony, who is a, a mine of bounty, that's not a dream. In some ways, it's real. It really happened. Um, she asks this Roman emissary, could this be true? Was there such a man? And he responds to her, gentle madam, no, that this wasn't real. And yet she knows, and we have seen, in fact, that it is at least in some way, there is some truth to it. If there was a person like this, she tells us, it's past the size of dreaming. Maybe we can't understand. Maybe we who are still here on this side, because we're not in that process of becoming something else or moving into the next world. Maybe it's just that we can't see, we can't understand, but she knows it's still there. Dolabella says that this vision isn't real, but it's real enough to bring about a significant change in the world of the play. Following this speech, Dolabella tells Cleopatra, Your loss is as yourself great. I do feel by the rebound of yours a grief that smites my very heart at root. Dolabella is moved by the rebound or reflection of Cleopatra's grief, by this speech which so eloquently communicates the greatness of her loss. And because he is so moved, Dolabella tells Cleopatra the thing she most wants to know, that Caesar plans to display her in triumph. This information confirms her decision to commit suicide in what she frames as her own divine transformation. Put on my crown, she tells her women. I have immortal longings in me. I dreamed there was an emperor, Antony. Oh, 
such another sleep that I might see, but such another man. His face was as the heavens, and therein stuck a sun and moon which kept their course and lighted the little O, the earth. His legs bestrid the ocean, his reared arm crested the world, his voice was propagated as all the tuned spheres and that to friends. But when he meant to quail and shake the orb, he was as rattling thunder. For his bounty there was no winter int, an autumn twas that grew the more by reaping. His delights were dolphin-like, they showed his back above the element they lived in. <laughs> in his livery walked crowns and crownets, realms and islands were as plates dropped from his pocket. Think you there was or might be such a man as this I dreamt of. Gentle madam, no. You lie up to the hearing of the gods. But if there be, or ever were one such, it's past the size of dreaming. Nature wants stuff to vie strange forms with fancy, yet to imagine an Antony when nature's peace against fancy, condemning shadows quite. Shakespeare for All is written and produced by Maria Devlin McNair. Executive producer is Zachary Davis. Associate producer and narrator is Gemma Deer. Original music and sound design is by Jack Pombriant. This episode featured performances by the following actors. Andrew Woodall for Enno Barbas, The Barge She Sat In. Scott Ripley for Antony, I Will Overtake Thee, Cleopatra. Dame Harriet Walter and Dame Janet Suzman. For Cleopatra, I dreamt there was an Emperor Antony. For this course, information was drawn from and ideas were inspired by the following sources. Marjorie Garber, Shakespeare After All. Frank Kermode, Shakespeare's Language. Joyce Green MacDonald, Women and Race in Early Modern Texts. Ania Lumba, Shakespeare, Race and Colonialism. Cynthia Marshall, A Modern Perspective, Antony and Cleopatra. Carol Rudder, Shadowing Cleopatra. Emma Smith, This is Shakespeare. And the following editions of Antony and Cleopatra. The 1995 Arden Shakespeare, the 2011 Norton Critical Edition, and the 2016 Norton Shakespeare. Shakespeare for All is a Lyceum original production and available wherever you get your podcasts. Learn more about the show by visiting shakespeareforall.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.